If we have not met yet, my name is Peter Boyer. I'm one of the elders here at Halifax Christian Church. And uh, for most of the summer, apart from one week, I think, um, I have been taking in the worship with my wife uh, from a distant location, so online. Um, And uh, this morning, when I first got here, two different people um, said, uh, didn't recognize you. I said, come on, we, we haven't been away that long. And they said, no, you're wearing long pants. <laughs> so uh, if it's not the mask that confuses you, it might be the long pants. Um, I have the privilege of sharing from God's Word. This is, the, I think, the fifth message uh, in the series on Ephesians. So far you've heard from uh, Greg and James and Rob, and I get to lead us in Ephesians chapter 3. This will close out kind of the halfway period of the book. Um, Let's just go to God first before we start. Heavenly Father, to you be the glory. The the message of Ephesians is one of incredible hope, but there's also some things that are challenging to us. There's some mysteries, but fortunately, Lord, you have chosen to reveal them to us, and and we thank you for that. So just uh, be with us now, Lord, and if there's one person here who can grow deeper in their faith May it be, if there's one person here or viewing online who is about to come to faith, may it be so. Lord, ultimately, whatever it is that we do with our lives, if it is to the good, it is for your glory, and it's because of you, and we just want to thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to choose to, uh, I'm going to choose to sit this morning, because I'm going to do a bit of storytelling. Uh, James did that last week, and I kind of like that, and so I want to tell a story. When I looked at the text for Ephesians chapter 3, I I tried to decide, how do I want to do do this? Uh, This is an interesting chapter, um, especially because there's not a lot new in chapter 3 compared to the first two chapters. And so after thinking about this, mulling it over, um, I decided that I want to start by a quote from 1 Peter. And so you can follow along the screen uh, or you follow in your Bibles. I'm using the New International Version. Here's what Peter says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. There are so many things that we could talk about. There's so much to say about hope and salvation. But this was a really good launching pad for me, I think, because that last sentence, even angels long to look into these things. For those in the heavenly realms who would consider themselves the dark forces, there have been a lot of surprises. For angels who are with God, there have been some surprises. For us, there are surprises. And I'm titling this message, Salvation by Surprise. I found it interesting that there are things that perhaps we know that the angels don't. And you say, well... How is that possible? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, But the first thing I think it's important to realize is that in Ephesians 3, if you've been following along, there's actually not a lot new. 
uh, compared to the first couple of chapters. So why would Paul repeat himself? Well, my understanding of Scripture is that when somebody says something a second time, there's, there's usually a reason. We, we want to put special emphasis on this. Well, there's just a little bit more to, to, to pull out of this, some subtle nuances, some, some things that we can finesse out. And then there are just some big, bold messages that we just need to be told a second and a third and a fourth time, like a sledgehammer to the back of the head. You need to get this. And so I'm going to tell a story. And what's the, what, what is a story? What makes a story? Well, the story is, you know, some, some telling where you've got some mission or goal or purpose and there's some bad guy or an antagonist or a villain who tries to stop this mission or goal or, or, or purpose from being accomplished. And then you have the protagonist, a good guy, a hero, who tries to solve the problem and make it happen. And you have all those things together, you got yourself a story. And depending on how it's told, it can be a good story. For me, the best stories are the ones that actually come with surprises. Not just one big surprise at the end, a big reveal, but surprises all the way through. You know, wow, I didn't see that coming. I, I just find those exhilarating, and I think most people tend to find those kind of things exhilarating. And so one of the first things I would say is that Christianity, first surprise, is that Christianity is, uh, is actually not a religion. It's a relationship. Surprise. If you, if, you think it's a, if, if you think it's a religion, you're probably not part of it because it's not about religion. It's about the relationship that we have with God through Christ. Um, one of the surprises revealed in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians is that this relationship with God comes at no effort on our part. There's nothing that we can do. It's all about what Christ did for us. And so it's free. And for most of the world who thinks about religion or people who shun religion because they think of the reasons why it's awful, um, even Jesus himself would agree. Um, no interest in religion. This is about relationship with God. And it's all about what he has done for you. So if that's a surprise, it's a happy surprise. And that's part of the good news, the, the, the gospel message. Um, our hope of salvation is a story that has been told for a long time. And Christianity uh, is kind of like a, like a long-running TV show, right? I mean, I don't know how many of you like watching TV shows uh, the way you used to, where you would watch an episode, and next week you watch the next episode. I swear, at one point in my life, and it's not that long ago, I said I would never be that guy who would binge watch. Until I became a binge watcher, the word binge watch was non sequitur to me. It didn't make any sense. Um, I'm now that guy. Um, because I finish an episode and I don't want to wait for another week, thank you very much, especially if it's available, delivered up right now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to binge watch the Bible. Uh, I'm, going to tell you the, I'm going to tell you the Bible as if it was a TV show of six seasons. And let's just take a fast look at the six seasons. You say, why? Well, I thought we're here to hear from Ephesians 3. We are. But in order to understand Ephesians 3, you kind of have to binge watch the first few seasons. So if you bear with me, season one uh, takes, uh, takes place in, uh, in the garden, um, or before the garden, uh, the creation of, of everything. God created the universe. He created uh, animals. He created man. Um, he put him in a nice garden where he walked with man. One of the things that's important to pull out in this story is that when he, when he created you know, plants, he, he, these are living things that have, uh, have, have bodies. 
Then when he created animals and creeping things and even little microbes, um, the language in the, in the Hebrew actually tells us that he did something different with those. He put a spark of life in them, something that would actually translates to the word soul. And so animals are different because they have a soul. When he created man, he said, let us make man in our image, meaning it's, that's going to be different from the animals. And what we see from God in chapter 2 of Genesis is that he places a spirit in us, something inside the soul. And so we are set apart essentially that way. And we have this wonderful existence with God. We're living in this great place called paradise, a, a, a garden called Eden. Um, God's giving us some responsibilities. Life's great. That doesn't make for a good story. I know a lot of people who are very cynical and they would say, that is a gross story. Where's the conflict? And they'd be right. They're cynical, but they'd be right. In order to have a story, you have to have conflict. And so Genesis chapter 3, we enter season 2, and uh, we have a new character that shows up. So originally we got God, and we got Adam and Eve, and now we have this other character shows up, the serpent, who we find out later is actually Satan. How did he get there? Well, we don't understand the timeline perfectly because he lives in the, in, the, in the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is not constrained by the physical laws of the universe, such as time. So the spiritual realm, they can travel backwards and forwards in time the way that we think, and, but they don't think of it that way. And so we're not sure exactly where in the timeline this falls. I have my own suspicions. But we do know from the scriptures later on that there was a great war in heaven. And then this great war... Um, Satan rose up against God and declared war and he convinced a third of all the angels in heaven to follow him and Michael and his warrior angels uh, who were the good guys they defeated them and they cast them out cast them down to the earth and now we had this guy show up and is this, is this after the war in heaven? Maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure what we know is that he's, he's got a chip on his shoulder and why does he have a chip on his shoulder? And, and I think the chip on his shoulder is from one reason only. He knows what the scripture says later, and he already knows it to be self-evident, that he is a greater cre creation than man. The angels are a superior race of beings. Scriptures tell us that. No, no ambiguity at all. And they were created to serve God, but when Satan and all of these other angels that followed him found out the first surprise that their job was to actually serve this new creation called man. I think it was just too much, and he had kind of a psychotic break. If you have psychotic breaks in the spiritual realm, I don't know. And he became full of pride, and he goes, no way, I'm better than them. And so we have this, this nasty stuff that unfolds. Uh, and ends up convincing Adam and Eve to go against God, and they get booted out of paradise. And now they have to learn to live in a relationship with God in a new way, and that way is called faith. And from Genesis chapter 3 uh, and 4, right to the end of the Old Testament, um, we see this journey where people are trying to, to have a relationship with God through faith. So I'm going to stop it right there, but we do have, at the end of, uh, up to the end of Genesis, we do have a bunch of heroes that show up that are kind of the early part of that faith journey. We get guys like Noah and Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. These are all great individuals of faith who try to, try to lead people to have a connection with God, the God that they cannot see.
they all long for the time that it was like with, when Adam and Eve walked with God, but now it has to be sufficient that they have this relationship by faith. And so this takes us now fully into the book of Exodus. New character shows up. His name is Moses. He's going to be the one to deliver people from uh, the, the enslavement that they are in, in in Egypt. But really what God has in mind in this season three is that they are actually enslaved to sinful ways, sinful thinking. And so Moses is the deliverer. And it's interesting that, you know, the the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt at the time, he finds out that this deliverer is coming. He's Somebody whispers in his ear, and so he tries to kill all the babies, kill all the boys, and uh, what ends up happening is that God, in his infinite wisdom, delicious irony, he actually uh, hides Moses as an infant right under Pharaoh's nose, right in Egypt. Keep that in mind. Um, then we, we see that through Moses, the people, are finally, they are delivered, they escape. This is now the people that all came out of Abraham. They're now a nation unto themselves. And Moses, because of the way God revealed himself to Moses, established themselves as a formal nation whose entire reason to be, their raison d'etre, is to worship God. And they, they were given over 600 some odd laws and rules, which are essentially worship laws and worship rules. This will set them apart as a nation amongst everyone else so that they can have a relationship with God through faith and through these laws. And what they always did was they always longed for the time when they could be back having that direct communication with God again. And it, was, it wasn't working. They were making all kinds of sacrifices. If you want to go through history and do an accounting of it, someone estimates in the billions or tens of billions of animals were sacrificed. But they were just never enough. Just never enough to allow people to have that full sense of communion with God. And so through the rest of the Old Testament, we have prophets continuing to try and remind the nation of Israel why they need to stay with God, why they need to be faithful. And then things go silent. And I'm sure that pretty much everyone assumed that the show had been canceled because there were no more episodes. And after a period of about 400 years, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I guess this is season four. And a new character shows up, and his name was Jesus. And he was born as a baby, and he was also a deliverer. A deliverer, the ultimate deliverer of, of sin. And what God did there was he created a new creation that had not been seen before. And he actually created a new man that was half him and half man. And I do wonder, again, with some delicious irony, if when God created us in his image way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I wonder if he was actually looking ahead, like this is the ultimate planning, if he was looking ahead to a time when he would want to actually build into us a place where he would one day take up residence and live inside of us. I don't know. My romantic mind tends to go to places like that. But he was, this, this man named Jesus, he, he grew and he became a rabbi, a teacher. Uh, he was the redeemer. We know from basic Christianity, even if you're an atheist, you know the fundamentals of Christianity, that Jesus died for our sins. He became the reason that we could have direct access to God again. All those 600 some odd laws were set aside, and now we have direct access into God. The things like the incarnation might have been, might have been a surprise to, to Satan. I don't know. It was certainly a surprise to everybody else. But if Satan, like all the others, who had really understood and known what Isaiah 9 was saying, we know that the prophecy was that this deliverer would actually be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was predicted that it would be God himself coming as the deliverer. So if this is the deliverer, <laughs> he must be God himself. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the good guy. Interestingly, just again, a bit of delicious irony. Did, did Satan know this, or was it another surprise that when Herod, who was the new king on the, on the site, heard there was a deliverer coming, um, he, had to, he wanted to kill all the boys, uh, the baby boys, and so God once again did what he did before, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, he hid Jesus in Egypt one more time. Um, you got to love that, right? And so now we, we're coming to the end of, uh, of season four, and if there was no death on the cross, if there was no rising again, then Jesus couldn't have gone back to the Father, and he could not have sent his Holy Spirit. And so season five, which by the way is where Ephesians takes place early in season five, and remember I said it's a true story, so we are in season five right now, all of us here, we're, we're living in later part of season five. I'll be picking up the text in a second, but... Essentially, this is the, the, the period of the church, the Holy Spirit at work within people, uh, the great war that's going on between the evil forces and now us, not just between Satan and God and his angels, but, or, uh, sorry, uh, Michael and his angels who are working for God, Satan against them, but this is now against us because Satan knows he can't hurt God, but what he can do is hurt the ones that God loves, and that's us. If you ever wondered why sometimes Christians are a target, I think that's your reason. And then uh, just plug your ears, spoiler alert, season six, um, victory, we win. Um, there's a kind of a counting of all of the, uh, the scale, balancing of the scales, and we go back to paradise, living forever, way better than the first paradise. But that's for another time. Right now, we're in season five. Let's jump into Ephesians 3 with everything I just told you because... I can make it sound like it's pretty simple, but you know it's more complex than that. The storyline is more complex than that. The relationship with God is more complex than that. But at the same time, is it, or do we just make it more complex? There are complexities that the mind cannot fathom. But in terms of the relationship, it really is very simple. So what Paul is writing here in Ephesians 3, as I say, is a bit of a repeat of the first couple of chapters, is the important message that he wants these people to understand about where they fit in season 5. Uh, you won't, don't, look in, don't look at Ephesians 3. You're not going to see season 5. Um, so pick it up. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... For those that don't know, Gentiles are everyone who's not a Jew. That's it. And Paul is making it clear to them that he is in prison for them. And it's his pleasure. He is in prison for them, for the non-Jews, because of the message that he has been given to give to them. And then in verse 2 he says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Yeah, there was probably hardly anybody in certainly the, the, the Jewish world, but even outside of that, who had not heard of this guy named Paul, uh, originally called Saul. So he was a Pharisee. Uh, he came from good, a good pedigree, really well-trained, very famous named uh, rabbi that had trained him. 
And he was very much a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was actually one of the ones leading the torch brigades to haul Christians out of their homes, this, this new sect called you know, Christianity. Uh, they, had, they had a more derogatory term for it. Um, they were dragged out of their homes, and some were jailed, some were executed. So Paul was that guy until one day God stopped him. He was on his way to a place called Damascus, and uh, Paul stopped him, and, and, or God stopped him, and Paul had his, you know, I've seen the light moment, uh, literally. And God got his attention and said, you know, why are you persecuting me? Basically, Paul was messed up in his head from that point on. And he had to go get straightened out. And we read from Galatians that he goes off into Arabia for, for a period of years. I'm guess, he doesn't say why, but I'm guessing, well, what's in Arabia? It's desert. <laughs> There's more than that, but I'm keeping it simple. There's desert. I think he needed a place to go and get his head sorted out to figure, how could I have served God my entire life? I know the scriptures. If you're a rabbi at that time, you've got the entire Old Testament memorized. To them, there's only one testament. It's the promises of God. It's memorized completely. And he's going, how could I have gotten this so completely wrong? And so he gets his head screwed on right. God ministers to him. And he emerges back into the world of the apostles. And quite honestly, they're terrified of this guy. Because all they know is what they'd heard before. And I, and I bet the Ephesians have heard these rumors as well, who this Paul guy is. And he's just reminding them of what you've already heard about me in the past, but what you know about me now is that I saw the light, and I have been given specifically the, the, the message, the calling from God to take the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. Peter was given the, the, the ministry of going to the Jews, but I'm given the ministry of going to the Gentiles. Uh, arguably the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. He evangelized that entire area. He wrote almost a half of our New Testament. And so that's, that's who this guy is. And he's just basically reminding them, you know, you know the things that you've heard about me before. He's establishing his credibility. He's setting it up so that what he says that follows, they will take very seriously. Verse 4, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is the first big surprise I want to draw our attention to. Salvation is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews. It's for, it's for everyone. And you'll say, well, yeah, we know that. You're, we're all sitting here this morning, you know, and those of you who are not Jewish, and you're sitting here, you're going, yeah, I get that. But the only reason you get that is because of the work that Paul did. And a lot of the things that we saw Jesus and the apostles do in hindsight, because we know how the story ends, we know what they're doing, but they didn't know what they were doing. This was, an, this was a surprise to them. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture about how an entire group of extraordinary men can be completely gobsmacked uh, is in Acts. And so the apostles have, have formed the, the kind of the center of the Jerusalem church. They're already doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. They're spreading the message. But now God says, you know what, they still don't get it. After everything they've been through, they still don't get it. So God arranges for, for the Apostle Peter, who's kind of like the leader of that group, 
um, to have an encounter with a man named Cornelius, who is not a Jew, and through some direct intervention by God, through a vision, and through some outpouring uh, of the Holy Spirit, God convinces Peter that even the Gentiles are in. It's hard to try to imagine what's going on in the hearts of these guys, because at this point they must be going, how do we get this so wrong? Which is a really good question, because when they were traveling around with Jesus, and he was going into Samaria on his, on his journeys of, uh, of uh, miracle working and, and good news proclaiming, what did they think he was doing? Did they think he was just going and taunting them with a carrot? By the way, here's the good news, and that's not for you. That wasn't what they were seeing. And then when they went further up into, you know, on the, on the shore up in the Mediterranean, Tyre and Sidon, he was up there performing more miracles. He was sharing the gospel. What did they think he was doing? That's not Jewish territory up there. Or when he went across the Jordan into the Decapolis, definitely not Jewish over there, doing exactly the same thing. What did they think he was doing? And surely they must have had some conversation about that secret meeting that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, out of which we get probably the best known verse in the entire Bible. Even atheists can quote this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. They heard those words from Jesus. Who did they think was the whoever? Was it just Jewish whoever's? Was it religious leader whoever's? Was it Bible college professor whoever's? Was it special pious people whoever's? No, Jesus said whoever. You're a whoever. I'm a whoever. Step outside these doors and look at anybody. Pick any human being walking by. That's a whoever. This is why we need to be sharing the gospel message because the world is filled with whoever's. So how did they not understand this? How did they not recognize that this was for everybody? But we all sometimes get caught up in looking at things a certain way. And when it does happen... It's a wonderful surprise, and so I can guarantee the apostles, they really can appreciate the surprise. Here's, here's the way it goes down in Acts chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. When they heard this, they had no further objection and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life you almost can pick up a little tinge of, I don't know, just, it's like, wow, who saw that coming? Now even the Gentiles are in. It's like, it's not, it's not a very favorable way to put it. Wow, didn't see that coming. They should have seen it coming, but they didn't. But I guarantee that for the rest of their lives, that message was a surprise that resonated in them and was transformative for them. That's what surprises can do sometimes. They can, uh, you can hear something a thousand times, and when you hear it that thousand and first time, and it suddenly resonates, it changes you. Because you go, oh, that's what they've been talking about all along. Let me continue in verse 7. I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of, God, uh, gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ 
and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for which ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. God revealed his big surprise mystery to Paul, who then shared it with the rest of the world. Because I think Paul was the only one, after everything he'd been through, who could actually handle that level of surprise. I don't think the others were ready, and they would have probably sat on that. But Paul had already been completely broken by God and rebuilt up by him. And now we get things that you just don't read anywhere else in the New Testament. It all fits together perfectly. But if you've ever read, if you've ever read the writings of Paul, by, just by show of hands here, if you've ever read anything that Paul has written, especially something like Romans, and you go, I'm not sure I fully understand, raise your hand. Okay? Thank you for your candor. For those that didn't raise your hand, you've either not read Paul or you're in denial. Um, because even the Apostle Peter says, Paul's stuff is hard to understand. And so Paul has been given a special revelation. Um, and we're learning things that we wouldn't have learned any other way. In verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This might be a surprise for some of you. Uh, in this verse here, in verse 10, he says, uh, God should make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's a terminology that Paul uses exclusively for the evil forces in the heavenly realms. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he speaks about this, and in chapter 6 especially, he speaks about this, talking about the evil forces, the dark forces, and he uses the same language, exact same language. And so, did you realize before, or is this a surprise to you, that the revelation to the dark forces of what God's plan is came through us, came through the church. That's interesting. That's surprising. To those in the dark world, um, to Satan, I think this is probably the, one of the chiefest of insults. They tried to figure out God's plans all along and never quite fully understanding. And they had to learn the truth from these inferior creations called man. But we know that while we may be inferior in terms of the creation, greater is he who lives in us than he who lives in the world. And he empowers us and he makes us strong. We may be weak and frail to look at, but we are not weak and frail because we have power that he does not even know about. Angels long to look into these things. In verse 12, In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. We have an ability that nobody in season three had, and that is to come directly to God. It was only because of what Jesus did for us, and now his spirit lives in us. We have the freedom to come directly to God, not by holding up all of the laws that we kept, but by simply coming to God. We have that freedom, and we have that confidence. And we know that there is nothing that's going to stand in the way of us holding on to that. And that's a powerful truth for us. And sometimes a simple sentence in a New Testament letter can be life-changing. Because this freedom and confidence is something that is supposed to be felt very deeply inside. Paul prays for the Ephesians. Um, and there's, there's another interesting lesson here for us when he, when he prays for them. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glory.
glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. From the same prison, Paul wrote another letter, and I want to show you the way he said this in a letter he wrote to the church at Colossae, a church, by the way, which he had never visited. In Colossians 1, he said, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hopes of glo- the hope of glory. God lives in us. God lives in all of us who call him Lord. He has chosen to take up residence, and we bring glory to God, and we're the ones that reveal God's plan to a broken world. We're the ones who have revealed his plan to the evil forces in the heavenly realms. We are the ones who have been given the responsibility, as Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, that we've been given both the ministry and the message of reconciliation. God said, here, now it's your turn. Take what you know. I can't do this. I I, I don't know enough. Uh, I'm not ready to do this. I'm not a good speaker. And you can list your thousand reasons why you can't do that. And he just says, just share the hope that you have. You have hope? The creator of the universe is living inside of you. The one who hovered over the waters in the in that opening couple of sentences in Genesis, lives inside of you. The one who moved the prophets through the ages is living inside of you. The one who raised Jesus from the grave is living inside of you. Friends, brothers and sisters, please be careful when you're speaking about the Holy Spirit that you never demote him to an it. I often hear people say, yeah, it... uh, it's, it's strong on me today. What? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, it's a who. He's a he. He's part of the Godhead. And I think sometimes when we use language like it's, I think that's actually a very quiet betrayal of how we actually understand what's happening inside of us. If I hear somebody do that who's a Christian, I don't judge them, but I will take that as an opportunity for a little bit more training and say, look, He is living inside of you. I'm not interested in an it, but a who. And the one who created everything is living inside of you. Don't tell me that there isn't something that you are not capable of. You are capable of absolutely anything, and he's asking you to do some things. Let uh, let me, Let me just read the last part here that I want to read before we, we bring this to an end. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You have power because he lives inside of you. You can only ever attain attain the full measure of the fullness of God by him living inside of you. That wonderful event that happened in season four, the incarnation where God said, I am taking up residence in this man. He's different than anyone who lived before and even us because he had him living in him fully 
from inside the womb. For us, he comes and lives inside of us and helps to bring us back to God's way of living. Jesus brought us back through his death on the cross. But by living inside of us, we have power as he sanctifies us and makes us more and more into the image of what God already sees when he sees us through Christ. And so I have a question here. Why did God put his spirit in us? I think this is probably for me the driving message of, of this chapter. Well, I've got three things. There may be more, but I'm listing three things here. First one is transformation. When Jesus died on the cross, we were made into a new creation if we accepted him, and we were freed from the guilt of sin. Second thing is empowerment. Now that he lives inside of us, we are empowered and we are free of the power of sin, and we have the ability to live up to the full measure of God. What does that mean? It means we can all be more like God. And the entire New Testament is filled with instructions about how we all need to learn to live to be more like God. My caution to you is that please, please, please don't try to do this under your own power. You'll only get so far. You will fail. I've been, I'm not going to say I've been at this longer than all of you, but I've been longer at this than most of you. And uh, I did not grow up in a Christian household. I came to faith later on. Um, but I can testify. Doing this under your own power, yeah, it's not going to work. doesn't mean you don't have things to do. There are things that you do that will cooperate with the processes that God uses to change you. But it's ultimately him that changes you and allows you to do these things if we let him. And the third thing I've listed here is, as you've heard in some of the earlier sermons, uh, it's a deposit on our inheritance. It's God's seal to his covenant of eternal freedom. And that's really looking forward to season six. Um, that, that inheritance is coming in season six. The best news of all, is, as we've heard from our preachers in the first few messages, is it's free. It doesn't cost anything. Angels didn't see this coming. Prophets of old didn't see this coming. Great religious leaders didn't see it coming. The world around us still doesn't understand it. And my question to you is, do you understand it maybe just a little bit better now? I hope you do. And, and if anyone's here or, or watching online and you're, you're going like, I've never heard any of this before. I don't, I haven't, I, I, this is all new. Um, come speak to me. Call me. Contact the church office. Uh, if you're here and you can't get a hold of me, uh, turn to someone that's sitting beside you if they look like they know more than you and ask them. And now the people who know more than you are going, thanks a lot, Peter. Um, that's all right. I've just given them something to do. And if they don't know, they know who to, who to put you in touch with. Um, but it's very, very important that you don't let what you've learned today uh, just sit with you. Ponder it, but then do something about it, whatever that is. Um, as, we, as we close, uh, what I want to do is I want us to stand together. Uh, if you're at home and uh, you're watching online, I'm going to encourage you to stand as well. And the final words of chapter 3, uh, there's a very old term that we don't see here used much anymore, but it's, it's called doxology. It's, it's a praising of God. And so the final verses here in Ephesians 3 is the doxology. And I'm going to ask that we would stand together, and hopefully it's up on the screen here, and we can recite this together. So just you follow along, take my lead, and I'll try not to uh, mispronounce that word like I did in the first service. <laughs> now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.